like for everybody to join us in singing our call to worship this morning. You'll stand, kid, Lord. <clears throat> everybody to Hamer Creek Baptist Church this morning and uh, I'll say happy new year again or are we over that uh, but I hope you hope your year's off to a good start and uh, if not you're in the right place to turn it around let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer dear heavenly father Lord uh, we do give you thanks for the good things and uh, there are more than we can count and uh, Lord you have blessed us beyond what we deserve each and every single one of us uh, but Lord of course we all have many needs and burdens and uh, we know that you know what they are and uh, God, we do cast our cares on you, giving each of them to you, knowing that you know what is best for each of us. Uh, Lord, we come to you now with the uh, special request that you would help us this Lord's Day uh, to make much of the name of Jesus, to help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And uh, Lord, that our fellowship here would be um, a worthy communion of those that have the common bond of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God, we just, uh, we just ask for a special blessing of your spirit today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I've got just um, a few quick announcements, and um, well, here's one, these bottles, and in fact, uh, my wife mentioned um, the baby bottle boomerang, I really don't like the name of that, I'm just going <laughs> to, the baby bottle fundraiser, um, but the idea is that the bottles come back uh, with change in them, and uh, one church member has been kind enough to donate several of these, and they're on a table in the vestibule back there. So if you don't have one, but you'd like to use one, is it for, it's for this month, right? And so if you want to use one as your piggy bank for your spare change for the month of January, and uh, bring it back. And by the way, there are some that have been brought back full already. So if you make a contest out of this, left side versus right side, then you're going to have to keep up with what's what. Um, but anyway... Yes. Um, 
Uh, let me also mention that the men's breakfast, um, and it's once the holidays got going, we were kind of scattered on this. And again, we're late, but we're going to have our men's breakfast uh, Saturday at Burger Shack at 8 a.m. Um, and we will be sending out a uh, call or text reminder this week um, for that. And a couple other notes that see your bulletin about the children's ministry, if that's something that you're interested in. And also be mindful of the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter Trip. We've been saying it for a while. I guess we've had this in the work for a few months already. But April will be here pretty quick. So uh, make plans for it. Um, any other announcements that need to be made before we move to prayer requests? All right, let me mention some prayer requests. Um, I've got a, a few here that I want to update you on um, and a few that I just want to remind you of. Um, remember uh, the families that have lost loved ones, the Blackman family and the Green family. Um, remember uh, Logan Belt. Uh, this is Brenda's nephew uh, that has cancer. And I uh, pray that God uses this in his life um, and also that God would give him healing from it. Um, I want to ask that you would, would remember uh, Miss Libby. Uh, Libby has got some medical appointments coming up, so keep her in your prayers. Um, if you were here, I think it was Wednesday. I don't think we knew this. I don't remember when Eddie Jarvis had his stroke, but Brother Eddie Jarvis uh, had a stroke. He's at home. Um, he, he said that the effects of it are not debilitating. He's got some weakness in one side, um, but he does appreciate your prayers. Um, and I feel bad about even mentioning this because, uh, well, we don't know, we, forgive me, we don't know what we're talking about many times when we talk about what's going on in somebody's life. Um, but I had told you guys a few weeks ago um, that Scott Green, this is Wayne Green's youngest son, he's the youngest, right? Um, that he was having some heart issues, and he's not old. He's in his 40s. Um, and he, he kind of made a rebound. They sent him to hospice, and uh, when did I go see him? Thursday? I, I don't remember. I went and saw him one day last week, and he was, no, it would have been before Wednesday. Tuesday, I'll say. He was right peppy. Uh, ordering around the people that are looking after him and being a little bit bossy and telling me he's ready to go and he didn't belong in there. And I agree. I was like, this is not somebody that belongs in hospice. But his brother called me uh, late last night and said that he's barely waking up and uh, that he's just taking a turn for the worse. And his doctor said that he has days. And uh, so we'll see. Um, but I want you to pray for that situation. And I'm going to tell you why. I don't often elaborate um, but Scott told me this himself, and so I'm going to share it with you, that he didn't live his life the way that he thought he should have. He was not a church person, and that he wanted more life so that he could live a life that evidenced that he knew Jesus Christ. And so uh, whether he is granted that or not, I do not know. Um, but pray for him um, at this time. Also just want to ask that, um, well, remember Robert Cross um, this is a coworker of uh, of Daniel, and he he has got the flu and COVID. He's very sick at any rate. Uh, pray for him. And lots of people sick. That's on your um, your list here. In fact, I've been kind of shocked. I can't remember another year when there's been so many colds, coughs, sniffles, flus, COVIDs, all this stuff. It's just been uh, well, mostly a lot of little stuff. I know some people have been real sick, but mostly. Almost everybody I know has been sick with a little something. Um, and pray for our church. Um, and when I say our church, I mean the people 
of our church. Um, we have family members that are going through things. Many of us have family members that are lost, that don't know the Lord, uh, antagonistic to the things of the Lord. Uh, some that have backslidden, though Christian, backslidden family members. And of course we ask God to protect our, uh, the families in this church, that the, the men that are parts of families in this church would be leaders, um, that we would raise our children right, that God protect our young people. Um, but also I just want to say, pray that the people that are in churches, not just this church, will be able to stand up under the burdens that they have. Because sometimes that's God's plan for us is to carry something, not to get relief from it. That may be what we want, but that we would have the strength to bear the burdens that we have been given. So just pray that this church would have the spiritual strength to deal with what it's been given. With, with that, um, what prayer request would you guys like to mention? Carol? Remind me of your sister's name. Huh? Remind me of your sister's name. Nan. Nan, that's it. Oh, let's keep Rosa in our prayers. Let's remember Miss McNeil. else? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and uh, let's remember to pray for each other as we go uh, throughout our week, and um, let's bow our heads so that we can remember these now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you know all things, and uh, God, we ask more than, uh, more than anything that you would help us to trust you in your sovereignty, and to know that you are still seated on the throne and that nothing escapes your glance, nothing escapes your view. And God, still as uh, your church, as the people of uh, the sheep of your pasture, we come to you with these many requests. And uh, God, we just ask that, that you would minister. We ask, Lord, that each of us would slow down enough uh, to see you working in our lives, uh, to see you answering prayers and to know your goodness. And God, we just pray that you would, you would give hope and confidence to those that are going through the most difficult times. Uh, some that are going through uh, medical trials. Uh, some that are about to lo be losing their jobs. Lord, those that uh, have strained relationships, uncertainty on the horizon. God, just uh, give strength to all of these, helping them to trust in, in you as our great shepherd.
Uh, Lord, for uh, those that are sick, we ask for healing if it would be part of your will. And uh, God, we ask that you would uh, give us the courage and the strength to be obedient in all that we have the opportunity to do, for opportunities slip away. And God, we're so thankful for each person that's come out to church today. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would all be blessed for attending. And uh, God, help us, to, help us to come when we can, knowing that someday we won't be able to. And uh, Lord, we just want to give you thanks for your protection this week, uh, for your provision, and uh, Lord, for what you've got in store ahead of us. Help us all to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, who is our Savior. We ask this in His name. Amen.
Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John, if you would. We began 1 John last week, and we took the entirety of the first chapter. And today we will begin chapter 2, though we will not read all of it. Uh, but we are going to, uh, we're going to take the first 11 verses. I really should take the first 14, but I'm not going to. I'm going to take 11, and we'll save... Uh, this little hymn or poem that is included in 1 John chapter 2 for next time. I want to remind you before we read this that what we read today in chapter 2 is not a separate letter. It's a part of 1 John. And so we must view it in the context um, that we began the chapter in. Specifically, let me remind you that this is a call to Christian doctrine, to the true teachings as delivered to the apostles by Jesus Christ Himself. And specifically, John is um, he's launching a diatribe against the Gnostics, the false teachers of his day, but certainly this would hold true against any false teachings of our day. And I want to remind you that last week we saw an emphasis on this eyewitness account as given to the apostles. So if we want to remain in the truth as students of the Bible, as true Bible-believing Christians, then we will stick with what was delivered once and for all to the apostles, what they had, as he said, heard and seen and looked upon. We also noticed that there was a theme of fellowship. And the comparison was those that walk in darkness and that those that walk in light, those walking in darkness being those that do not have fellowship with Christ, those that walk in the light have fellowship with Christ. But he concludes with um, a teaching on sin. And I think that this is so important because so many get this wrong. And the idea is that we should strive to live holy, but none of us is perfect. None of us can truly live sinlessly. And he says as much. He says that if we say we do not, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But the, the verse that stands out in that passage that we looked at last week about sin the most is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A monumentally important Christian truth. And so today as we continue, I would like us to look at three Christian alts in 1 John chapter 2. So would you please stand for a reading of God's Word. And again, we're going to read these first 11 verses. John is addressing the church. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked." Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. Excuse me. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, 
which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's Word. You may be seated. The first thing that I want to mention before we dig into this wonderful text is the word alt. And this, uh, I said three Christian alts, but you're only going to find that word one time in the text today, and you will get that in verse 6. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so if you look this up, um, this is the Greek word aphilio, and it means to owe, to be indebted. Now luckily, this is a good country word that we use a lot, isn't it? And so you hear people say ought, things that we ought to do. In other words, it is your duty to do these things. These are things that you should do by obligation. In fact, we could go so far as to say that because Christ is your Savior, you are morally required to do these things. Now, does that mean that if you don't do these things, that you are not a Christian? I can't go that far. But I will say this, you will never have the peace that a Christian should have if you don't. So the first thing I want to point out, highlighted in the first two verses we read, is that Christians ought to live a life of victory over sin. Now look, John is not saying the Christian will never sin. Now, there are some churches that teach that, and I really don't know how people show their face when they walk in those churches because they ought to feel like a hypocrite every, th every time they walk through the door if that's their testimony is, I'm a Christian, so I never sin. In fact, if you can make it through a, a solid day, you're not even awake for all 24 hours of it and say, I didn't sin at all today, then you are a hypocrite. Because if you hold the standard as high as the Almighty holds it, you cannot live a day without some wicked thought, deed, or word. But you ought to live a life of victory over sin. It's not to say that you never sin, but that your life is marked by holiness. That your life is marked by somebody that follows the teachings and therefore lives the life of one in Jesus Christ. Now he says here himself that this encouragement is so, so that you may not sin. It's to keep you from sin. It's to encourage you away from sin and encourage you in holiness. And I want to tell you something. In fact, let me just, let me just jump right into it. The Bible never condones sin. Well, preacher, you just said that nobody can do it. I did say that, and that is in no way condoning it. Not one bit whatsoever does it condone sin. Now, the problem that we have is that when we read the Bible and when we search the gospel, what we see is salvation is by grace through faith. Not works, not good deeds, not certain amount of sinlessness, but by grace through faith. Guess what? That's 100% true. There's no getting around it. And still you are called to holiness. Now Paul deals with this. Um, this idea that, well, in fact, it's, it's a heresy called antinomianism. 
And we don't use that word anymore, but some of you should write it down and go look it up and study it up because it is literally taught in some churches today. Some churches that call themselves Baptist churches. And the idea is that God's grace is so big that we can just sin and mess up all the time and it's not that big a deal because He bled and died for us. Well, He did bleed and die for us, but that is, in fact, to say that makes my sin small is ridiculous. And it misses the point. The reason that Jesus bled and died is not just so that you would be saved from the penalty of sin, but so that you would be saved from the power of sin and live a life marked by victory over sin. Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to, if we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? This idea that we can live in sin as Christians is heretical. And it should be avoided at all costs. And if you have some thought that even vaguely mirrors that creeping into your mind, you should repent and turn back. John's whole point here is that you can't think that way. Now, don't read what he says when he says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Just as an excuse to say, well, we can go on and sin. In fact, this is a diatribe against the filthiness of sin, the offense of sin. But what he's admitting is that even the best of us, on our best day, fall short. Even when we try with all of our might, we're never as holy as a thrice holy God. And so what he wants you to know is even though you can't hold the standard of God, that you have an advocate, and that advocate is Christ Jesus. In fact, I'll go back to what we just sang about in that first song. That we, and we read about this last time. It says that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. I hope that was the highlight of last week. The fellowship of the church is in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the common bond that we have. And it is indeed the one thing that can wash away our sin. And it is the free gift that is given to the one that has faith. Now I want to take just a second to deal with something because many times people do strange things with this verse. And if you will look at verse 2, I want to read it and then I want to comment on it and give you some exposition because we interpret the Bible, every verse of the Bible, in light of all of the rest of the Bible. Now read this verse with me. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now there's only... There's only two real ways that that can be interpreted. Now, people can twist it into a thousand different things, but let me just say this. If you interpret that, if you took it completely out of context, not in the Gospel of John, not in the Bible, and you did what, to our shame, some fundamental Baptist preachers do, and you just say all means all, then you say everybody is forgiven no matter what, which means universalism. That would mean that everybody is saved, the worst, the most unrepentant, the ones that hate Jesus, the ones that hate God, they would, be, they would be saved too. No faith, no repentance, no good fruit. Anybody and everybody. I'll just elaborate in case some of you are mad at me. That would mean the worst and most unrepentant murderers, thieves, idolaters, pedophiles, wicked individuals, no matter what. Or... It fits into the context of what John has said here. And if it fits into the context of what John has already said, which it does, then it needs to be interpreted thusly. And remember that he is writing to a first century church. 
And Christianity was born out of Judaism, and it is a Jewish phenomenon. In fact, it's almost funny that we have so many churches that are packed with lily-white Americans because it is a Jewish phenomenon. I shouldn't say it's funny. It's by God's grace alone and according to His perfect plan. But this uh, idea of universalism must be rejected, and I'm going to show you why in just a minute. But I want to first compare this verse to another verse that you find in the gospel according to John. So let me read this verse and then the verse that we find in John chapter 11, verse 51 through 52. This one says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this is what John 11 says. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you understand the parallelism in that verse? In fact, you should probably write right next to 2 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2, John 11, 32 and 30, or excuse me, 31 and 32. Because when he says not for ours only, he means not for the Hebrews only, as it says in John 11, but not for the nation only, but also for the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this is what Jesus spoke about when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Praise God that He is also allowed unto the Gentiles. Praise God that He didn't say, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whichever Jews believe on Him, that He sent Him to the whole world. In fact, I'll remind you, uh, the first Baptist that ever wrote a complete commentary on the Old and New Testament alike was John Gill. And he says, not for us only, but also for the whole world. That is, not for the Jews only. For John was a Jew, and so were those he wrote unto, but also for the Gentiles. Nothing is more common in Jewish writings than to call the Gentiles amle, the world. And uh, another Greek word that I won't even dare try and pronounce, the whole world. And the nations of the world. Or sometimes it's the heathen or the nations that we see um, as listed in our English scriptures. So to presume that it means that Jesus died for the sins of all people, whether they repent or not, I believe uh, it casts shade on the perfect holiness of the sacrifice that took place at Calvary and that we must see this in the light of Scripture. So, in fact, the Puritan John Owen said it this way, The Father imposed His wrath due unto, and the Son underwent the punishment for either the sins of all men all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. In which case, it may be said that if the last be true, that is, some of the sins of all men, then all men have some sins yet unanswered for, and therefore none are saved. That if the second be true, that Christ died for all the sins of some men, then in their stead He suffered for the sins of all of those that believe in the whole world. And by the way, this is the truth. All the people that have true faith and believe on Jesus Christ, all their sins are atoned for. Not some of them. All of them. Completely and perfectly. But if the first be the case, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? In other words, you can look for Hitler in heaven if he died for all men regardless of their faith and repentance. So when you read this verse, please read it in context. And don't let some 
Maybe well-intentioned, but misinformed commentator tell you otherwise. John's point here is that if you are a true believer, but that's the most important part, if you are a true believer, all your sins are atoned for and perfectly and completely. Not one left on your charge. All your sins forgiven. And so what he's saying is they were exposed in the light. They were paid for by Jesus. Now walk in the light. Live like a Christian. He says even that we have the righteous, the one righteous, as our advocate, Jesus Christ. In fact, that word propitiation, if you don't know, that means satisfaction. And so when Jesus paid the price, did you ever get paid a price for something? And maybe it was even what you asked for and you weren't satisfied with it in the end. I've had that happen. That's what we call making a bad deal, remorse, regret. Well, let me tell you something. When Jesus paid the price, there was no regret. There was no remorse. There was no, the price should have been different. It was perfect and it was complete. So we have propitiation because we have the perfect mediator in the man, Christ Jesus. And the, and the payment is complete. And it reminded me as I studied this, because this goes back to what he said last week. I already read it. I'm going to read it again. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I don't know who... Uh, who first penned the hymn, but there's a hymn that says, Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. And we sang a very similar one earlier today. And every Christian has that claim. And Christians, they ought to live a life of victory over sin because of that. Not for that. You can't earn it. It's still by grace alone through faith alone. The second ought that we see here is found in verses 3 through 6, and that's that Christians ought to know that they are saved. Again, an ought is not an absolute have to. And are there Christians in this world that, that are doubting their salvation, but they are actually saved? Yeah, I believe that there are such Christians. And I believe that they are a shame. I believe it should not be that way. There is an emphasis here on the word know. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whosoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Now look, that text is pretty clear that if you say, I know Christ, He is my Savior, but there are no evidences of it in your life. By the way, I'm going to do the thing that preachers... The sin of a preacher in a Southern Baptist life makes somebody doubt their salvation. If you profess to know Jesus Christ, if you profess to trust in the sacrifice paid at Calvary, the precious blood of Jesus, if you profess that Jesus Christ is God's Son and that He rose on the third day and you live like the devil, I would be terrified to be standing in your shoes. Terrified. Now, it's not about making you doubt your salvation. It's about sticking with what the Word of God says. John is the one making you doubt your salvation, not the preacher. It is a litmus test, and it says that if you, can, if you keep His commandments, then you can know that you know Him. Now, again, doesn't mean that you're perfect. None of us is perfect, but that your, your life is marked by victory. And by the way, this is, this is important for the Christian. There's another litmus test we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, We'll call this one litmus test number one. Can you obey the commands of Christ? You know what the big command of Christ is? It's to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, if you really believe the gospel, if you have really repented of your sins, 
a lot of that, oh, virtually all of the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts, they start falling into place because your heart is after his heart. You want what he wants. And you can know that you know him even though he is seated at the right hand of the Father because you obey his commandments. Now look, he says the opposite as well. Um, if you don't keep his commandments, you walk in darkness. You're living in sin. Now that's, that's not the same thing as committing a sin. That's living in sin. That's choosing sin. That's sinning yesterday and waking up with plans to sin today. In fact, this is what you call lifestyle. And some people have a lifestyle marked by sin. And let us not pick out any particular sin, but any sin. If, you, if you're a pathological liar, that's sin. If it is a sexual sin, that's sin. If you are a thief, if you were a thief yesterday and a thief tomorrow, that's sin. You must repent of your sin and walk in the light. If you say that you know him and you live some way that your life is marked by sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. By the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it says that the truth is not in you. His Holy Spirit dwells not in you. The truth of the gospel has not taken root in you. So John is the one here committing the great crime of making you doubt your salvation. And if you doubt your salvation when you read that or when you hear that read, don't get mad at me. Walk in the light. Live in the victory that the blood of Jesus provides. Now look, and don't come to me and say, well, I know I'm saved and, and you made me feel bad today. No, I didn't. I can't. I'm not that persuasive anyway. If I was, it'd be the other way around. But if you want to have assurance, it will come from obedience. Obedience begets assurance of salvation. So keep the word of His gospel and His commandments. And it says that the love of God will be perfected in you. Now there's something in this little passage that I don't want to take too much time on, uh, but I can't just skip over it. If you look in verse 5, one of the things, it says, By this we may know that we are in Him. Now this is, I know this is written by John, but Paul uses this language a lot, this in him language, this unity language, this being united. In fact, this is, there I flip over. I'm going to do it just, just real quickly. I'm going to kind of skip through Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to Paul use this same language. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. He goes on to say, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He says uh, in verse number 6 that we are blessed in the Beloved. That is in Christ. And it says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Paul uses this language over and over and over. And it, it sounds kind of weird. And you're supposed to, it's supposed to catch you off guard. And you're supposed to say, what does it mean to be found in Christ? And the answer is quite simple. It is that you are united spiritually with Christ. That you are one with Christ in a spiritual sense. And there are so many pictures in the New Testament that paint this. Um, there's the, the, the vine with the branches. The branches are found in the vine. Now, as a branch is dependent upon a vine for water and nutrients, so are you to be dependent upon Christ for your salvation, for your assurance, for your peace, joy, and for your salvation. We see that Christians are 
the lively stones and that Christ is the cornerstone. Now, that first stone that's laid, the one that sets the entire foundation is the cornerstone. And every other stone is, is placed because and, and based on the cornerstone. We see that Christians are the sheep of His pasture and that the flock of God must be found in Him, reliant on our great chief shepherd for protection, for provision, for teaching, for good doctrine, for salvation. We see that the Scripture says that Christ is the head and that we are the body. Now that one, you don't have to use your imagination, do you? A body with no head is dead. It's undone. It's useless. And the body must rely on the head. The body must do as the head says. And another picture, get in trouble for this one, marriage. The Christian marriage is to picture a unity. In fact, the Bible says that for a husband and wife to be joined in marriage is to be one flesh. And by the way, the Bible is so bold as to believe that men and women are different and that they have different roles. I don't, know, I don't know where God got that idea. You know, my children can pick up these elemental truths just by observation. But in marriage, the husband is supposed to protect, provide, and to preside over the home. And that's exactly what the Christian has in Christ, his protection. And like a good wife, by the way, I can say this. My wife, when we took our vows, she promised to be in front of a whole church full of people obedient to me. Can you believe that? That's just third wave feminists are passing out right now. They're going to start a rally after church today. But the fact is, this is God's design. And men, if you do your jobs, men, if you lead your family the way that you're supposed to, your wife will want to follow you. Can I get an amen from right here if nowhere else? Amen. Now look, well, I'm not going to beat up on marriage. Marriage is tough, I know that. But it's supposed to be a perfect picture of what we have in Christ. The Christian union with Christ has so much application in Christian living. But let me say this, you're dependent upon Him. You're obedient to Him. You love Him and you need Him. And by the way, if there's any men out there and you're too manly for that, let me say it. I'm a man. I can do the things that men do and I do. And I will say this, I love Him. I need Him. I'm dependent upon Him. And I need Him every day for every little thing. And I'm not ashamed of it. And He is my King. He is my Creator. He is my Savior. And there's nothing about that that's not manly. And those that are in Christ ought to, as it says in this passage, walk as He walked. Bar's a little high, isn't it? But we do our best to walk, that is to live as Christ lived. So your first litmus test there, I'll just say it. If, if you're a Christian and you go through times where you doubt your salvation, you ought to know that you're saved. And if you live a life marked by obedience, like that branch dependent upon that vine, then you will have the assurance of your salvation. Now, if you profess Christ, if you have perfect attendance at church, if you give all that you have when the offering is passed and then you go out and live like the devil, you will doubt your salvation. It is truly that simple. Now, verses 7 through 11 point out another Christian alt. And if I didn't get on your toes... Then, maybe I can get on them now. Christians ought to love one another. Now, maybe you caught that when we read that, it was about hating your brother or loving your brother, and maybe you were thinking about your biological brother. 
This refers to the family of God. And in fact, I want to remind you what Jesus said when he was preaching and teaching and he was gathered with his disciples. And someone came and said, uh, Lo, your mother and your brothers are without. And he said, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? Behold, pointing to the disciples, and he said, Here is my mother and here are my brethren. There is a family that is indeed closer than blood, and it is the family of God. And the command here, which this says is not a new commandment. That's what, that's what John says here. This is not a new commandment. In fact, when he says it's an old commandment, I hope you know uh, that when Jesus quoted the greatest commandment, he tied one to it. By the way, in short, it's to love God and love man, but specifically to love God and to love the brethren, to love your fellow heirs of salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus said it this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I should preach on that. I don't have time. Let me just say this. Church, don't forget to love Jesus with your mind. There is no excuse for anti-intellectualism in the church. Now, look, we'll save it for another time. He says, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the emphasis in this passage is on brother. In what Jesus said, it's on neighbor. And in fact, in the Bible, I'm not going to hide it, the Bible says that you're supposed to love your enemy and to pray for him. So Christians are to be marked by love, but there is a special love for the brethren. I wonder what you see when you look at your brother or sister in Christ in the church, nobody looking around now, is there? There's all kinds of people in here. All kinds of people from all different backgrounds that have been through all sorts of different things. They have different pasts. But if they're Christ's, they are a special new creation bought by the very blood of Jesus. And if you despise somebody that's in the family of God, then you're failing litmus test number two because you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of offenses, yes, against you and your sensitivities, sometimes Baptist people can be so particular, can't they? Oh, so-and-so hurt my feelings. I ain't never coming back down there. Don't come to me with that. If you do, I'm going to bust out Second John or 1 John chapter 2 right here. You are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You ought to. Now, let me give you a little bit of a, an out here. It ain't much of one. You don't have to love everything about them. But you do have to love them. So with all of our different personalities and all of our different pasts and our social classes, family names, family feuds, whatever differences people draw amongst themselves, if the same light of Christ that has shined on you shines on them, they are your brother. They are your sister, and you are to love them. Didn't know I was going to get to use my parenting skills up here today. I tell my kids that. That's your brother. Love him. I'm going to tell you today, that's your sister in Christ. Love her. Pray for her. That's your brother. Love him. Get along. Stop messing with his hair. Oh, that's just for my kids. <laughs> Matter of fact, I got so tickled. I'll tell y'all something about me. I'm a loud sneezer. Anybody know any loud sneezers? When I say loud sneezer, I'm talking about I, I like to yell when I sneeze. Now, that's the way my daddy sneezed. That's the way I sneeze. It comes natural, and I think it shakes everything up, and if your body's got to do that, do it the right way. 
Now, I know some of y'all, y'all think it's real polite to <laughs> make these little girly cat sneezes. And some of you hold your sneezes in. If you ain't deer hunting, let that thing roll. And I believe that the best of sneezes is a good, loud yell. Do you love that about me? Every time. Every time I sneeze, I cut my eyes over at my wife. She, she never even looks at me anymore. I just see that head shaking. Now look, my wife doesn't love that about me. She doesn't. Some, it used to scare her to death, but we've brought her down a little bit. She's used to it enough to where it doesn't give her post-traumatic stress. But she still loves me, even with all of my flaws. And that's not the worst one either. That's just one of them. And so let me just say in conclusion here that you can have victory over sin in life. You ought to. You should. You mess up every now and then? Yeah, you will. You're human. And you'll see it as an offense against a holy God. And you'll repent. And you'll come back to Christ. And you'll confess your sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It is a pitiful thing for a Christian to doubt their salvation. If you're doubting your salvation, you're making wrong decisions. And much of life, I see people so often and I think, why are they making the decisions that they're making? And especially, why are they making them over and over? But for a Christian... To live in sin? Well, my Bible says that's like a hog that's been washed that returns to the mire or a dog that returns to the vomit. In other words, it's a sickening thing. If you want assurance of salvation, come to Christ. Repent in true repentance and true belief and live like Christ. And then lastly, love one another. When you look at somebody in the family of God, I don't care what you've got going on. I don't care if you had... Just the biggest argument ever last week. When you look at that person, see them as somebody that Christ died for and love them. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, give you thanks for your instruction as given to us. We thank you, Lord, that Christ was sent not to the Jew only, but also to the Gentile. We thank you that by faith in Christ, by trusting in the payment of His blood, that we too are heirs to eternal life. God, we ask that for each person that's here today that you would give them the courage, the strength, the knowledge, whatever it is that they are lacking, to live their life in such a way that they can have the assurance of salvation. And God, help the church to love one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today we are going to observe the Lord's Supper. And uh, before we do that, I want to ask you all to stand. And as you're standing, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and tell you that this is not something to take lightly as some churches do. And I would like you, even now, as Miss Betty Sue plays, and we're still going to have a, a time of invitation or a time of response. And you don't have to come to the altar and pray. The altar is open. But do not come to the Lord's table, as the Scriptures say, unworthily. So take this as an opportunity of reflection and of prayer.
Thank you all. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. The rest of you may be seated. If you would, go ahead and prepare the table. And uh, as we prepare the elements to be served, um, I want to remind you, and I know that there are a lot of churches that have different views on the Lord's Supper, but Baptists have long upheld the belief that this is something that is a memorial view. In other words, there is no real sacrifice that takes place right now because the sacrifice that Christ made for us was made once and for all at Calvary. So when we do this, we do it looking back, remembering the sacrifice that was made, and we also do it looking forward to the day when we will be united with Him in glory and we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, what I would like to do now is read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. And I hope that you will grasp the gravity of this thing. And I'm not asking you to not partake of it. Rather, you are commanded to partake of it by your Savior. But you are commanded to do so in such a way that honors the intent of this wonderful ordinance. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." So I hope that you can grasp from Paul's words here, superintended by the Holy Spirit, how important this is, but also that it must be done with a good, clear conscience before God. And so what I'd like us to do is, though we've already given you the opportunity, I want you to, we're going to have just a moment of silence. No piano, no singing. I just want you to bow your head in an opportunity of self-reflection, and if needed, for repentance of your sins. We'll ask the deacons now, if they would, would you pass out the bread?
Kevin, would you give thanks for the body of Christ? As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now the deacons are going to distribute the fruit of the vine.
Savior was marked. The word of obedience, faith, 